Well, God bless you, and welcome to Nets 3. This is session 10, the comings of the Lord, including eternal rewards and eternal judgments. Well, God bless you. I want to continue to talk about the comings of the Lord. As we were looking at His coming, and that He has been coming, and He hasn't just come once, and also that as He does reveal Himself and unveils Himself to us as we seek Him, we're going to learn more about eternal rewards and even about eternal judgments, which are in Scripture for us to understand so that we can be more prepared for those things that are eternal. We saw that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, that there was a, one of the five crowns, the crown of righteousness, which was available to all of us who have loved His appearing. And we saw that to have loved His appearing is having the belief that you will spend forever with the Lord so vital in your heart that you are willing to base your life on this reality and lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven and not upon earth. Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of the Great Awakening, vowed never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. Now, in my experience, there's a big difference in the fruit of a person who has all of their hope wrapped up in the corporate coming of the Lord and little or no hope or belief in His personal coming or visitation. Now, we know that He is coming for His church, but His coming for any one of us may precede His coming for every one of us. In Acts chapter 17, verse 31, it says, Because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. If we keep all of our thoughts on those corporate judgments and callings, we're going to really miss the greatest opportunity that we're ever going to have to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. That's just my personal experience. But I believe what we think in our minds does affect the actions that we live day by day. Now, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, we'll begin in verse 5. It says, Which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us, when the Lord is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Now here it's talking about a revelation of the Lord when the Lord is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. It says, when He comes on a day to be glorified in His saints. This is spoken of again in Jude chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of His saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly, among them of all their ungodly deeds, 
which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. It says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, saw that there was a day coming when the Lord was going to come with thousands of his saints. Now, when it's talking about with ten thousands of his saints, could it be talking about coming for those thousands of his saints? Obviously, we have to look at these various comings of the Lord so we can understand what the Lord has planned for us and what is going to happen in light of the judgments of the world and the effects of the world, what is planned in eternity to be unfolded in these last days. But Enoch saw it, that there was a time of judgment that was coming, but that the Lord would come with His saints. There's a difference between Him coming with His saints and Him coming for His saints. But they're both comings of the Lord. In Psalm 96, beginning in verse 11, Let the heavens rejoice, and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field be joyful and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. For He is coming, for He is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and all the peoples with His truth. Let the heavens rejoice and the earth be glad. When you just read that in Jude, and you read that up in 2 Thessalonians, if you're one of those that's going to be judged unrighteously, you won't rejoice or be glad. But the earth even now is groaning and travailing because of the sin of Adam. And when that day comes... When the time is up and the Lord comes to bring judgment and to turn things around and to set His kingdom on earth, then all the earth will be glad, all the heavens will rejoice, and righteousness will be the result of that judgment. There's a coming for His saints, there's a coming with His saints, and there's a coming to His saints. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, I was watching... In the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people's nations' languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Daniel saw this, he foresaw this, and he tells us, some of what is coming. This is also spoken of by Jesus Himself in Mark chapter 14 and verse 62. Also you see this in Revelation chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. He's coming in the clouds. In Revelation 1, 8, it talks of the Lord as being the one who is and who was and who is to come. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He, if He was and He is and He is to come, that He was coming, He is coming, and He is to come. He's presently available. And His fellowship is presently available. Now in Matthew chapter 16, in verse 27, we read, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He will reward each according to His works. One part of the judgment is just not only that he ends the evil, but that he also rewards the good. That he will reward those that know him according to their works. In Scripture, there are seven different things that we're told that we should not be ignorant of. 
One of them we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those which have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. What coming is this? Is this a coming to an individual? Is this a coming to bring judgment on the world? Or is this a coming to His church? This is a coming not with His church, but a coming to His church. And at that time, at that coming... As we know, very often this is called the return, but we know now we can't call it the return. This is the coming of the Lord, but this is the coming of the Lord for His saints. When He will gather us together, those that are alive will be changed, and those that are asleep in Christ will meet Him in the air. We'll all meet Him together. Matter of fact, in Scripture, many times clouds represent people. When it talks about Him coming in the clouds, it's speaking of the many people that He'll be with. When He comes in the clouds, with the clouds, it's talking about coming with the saints. When He comes for the saints, we arise and meet Him in the air. If you look to that word for air, it's not the air that's far, far above the earth, but it's the word meaning the air that's closer to the earth, within sight of the earth. When He comes for His saints, we will meet Him in the air. I'm looking forward to that day. But that's not the only coming that I have hope in. Verse 16, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord Therefore, comfort one another with these words. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51, it speaks about this same event, and it calls it a mystery. That some of us will be changed, and some of us will be raised from the dead. But we are all going to be changed and receive new bodies like under His glorious body. The angels don't have bodies like His body. Demons don't have bodies like His body. Both angels and demons are spiritual beings without bodies. The bodies which we will have, like unto His glorious body, are tied to the inheritance that we have. Angels do not have an inheritance like we have available as sons of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, 21, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Now as we've learned in the past, just because it's listed in order does not mean that it happens that quickly. For instance, when it says Christ is the first fruits and afterwards those who are His that is coming, we know that there were thousands of years between when Christ was resurrected and when others will be resurrected. 
also, then comes the end. There's time between when He comes for His church and the very, very end when He gives all rule and authority back to the Father. Most believe that there's at least a thousand years. And there's other comings after He comes for His saints that He'll come with His saints to judge the world. That we are now, through our obedience... Not only are we laying up treasures in heaven, but we are also, in a sense, being trained now for what we will do for the king then. How we will administer his authority and his righteous judgment on the earth. Let's look at some more of his comings that we see in Scripture. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, it says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. He says, I've been watching you. I've been aware of what you've been doing. I know the good things you've been doing, that you've taken heart. You have judged those that say they're apostles and they're not, found them to be liars. But I also have this against you. You've lost your first love. In verse 5, he says, Remember, therefore, from where you are fallen. You've fallen from the place of walking in grace with your first love, Jesus Christ. Verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you are fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The lampstand is the church. Okay, The seven stars and the seven lampstands are, are the churches that he was speaking to. And he was saying to the church there in Ephesus that I want you to repent, go back to your first love, or I will come to you and remove your church. Now, could he be speaking about an eternal judgment here? Is there going to be a church of Ephesus in heaven? And if there is, if he were to take it away from heaven, it wouldn't be there. And th that certainly wouldn't have happened quickly. <laughs> he said, if you will do this, You'll be blessed. If you don't do this, I'm going to come to you quickly and remove your church. Now we know that that church remained for at least another 400 years. So they must have done what the Lord spoke to them through the Apostle John in that they must have repented for having a cold love towards Him and returned to their first love, Jesus. So when He said to them, I'm going to come, that was something He was saying to them while they were living while they were there. And he was giving them instructions on how they could improve things so they could receive blessings because they were otherwise going to receive a judgment then. You know, when God chastens us, he does it because he loves us. When he chastens us, he's trying to improve what we're doing and help us to have a full reward. So you have to know that when he said that, either change or I'll come and I'll remove your candlestick. That had to be part of the chastening of the Lord. But he was telling them ahead of time, hey, if you'll do what I'm saying, this won't have to be. If you'll do what I'm saying, if you'll change your direction, we'll go in another direction and I'll work with you in that place. When the Lord tells you those things, it's good to listen to Him. It's better that He come and bring blessings and bring grace than He come and bring the judgment. But either way, he'll let us know if we'll listen. Verse 6, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he compliments them. And then he continues, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He tells them the blessings that are there for obedience, and he tells them what they can do. He says, if you'll listen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you'll look in your Bible, there's eight times that Jesus says that when he was on earth, and there's eight times in the book of Revelation when he speaks that and gives that to us, trying to point out to us that we should be listening we should search for those mysteries as we looked. We should be stewards of the mysteries of God. As we saw just then, one of the mysteries being that we should understand about the resurrection. We should understand about the comings of the Lord. We should understand what it is to love His appearing so that we can prepare ourselves for what is coming. We're going to spend a lot more time in eternity than we are in preparation for eternity. So it behooves us to learn of Him and to have our ears open to hear what the Spirit is saying. To understand that He prefers to come and bring great grace. Let's look at another example in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and I know where you dwell. And he tells them a few things that they're doing wrong. And he tells them what they need to do to straighten things up. In verse 16, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And the Orientalism is seen here in that in the uh, Bible times that if you were convicted of certain crimes, but that if you paid the penalty and they felt like you were reformed, they would put a white stone in front of your home. It would be like a clean slate, we would call it. And that white stone would mean you've been purified. The judges in the city, the elders in the city were saying to the community that you've paid the price you're from this point forward, a new man. That's what he's saying here. These guys have sinned. These guys have, have done some things that, that aren't good. They're being corrupted by those that are surrounding them, that are worshiping at Satan's throne. But he's saying, hey, if you will overcome these things, I'm going to give you the blessings of eating the spiritual hidden manna, but I'm also going to give you a new name and a white stone, which shows none of these things are going to show up at the judgment. None of these things that I'm talking to you about are going to be there. It'll be a clean slate and a new name and a great blessing. So he again is warning them, I will come to you quickly. In 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. The judgment begins at the household of God. There's a number of things in light of timing there. Number one, the eternal judgments of God begin with the Lord coming for His saints. 
and the resurrection of those who have died in Christ Jesus. And when we meet Him in the clouds, then begins the time of judgment for the children of God, where we will go to the judgment seat of Christ, and before that judgment seat, which is known in the Greek as the Bema, it was the place where the judges in the Bible times sat in judgment to either give rewards or to give punishment. It was the same judgment seat that was used when they had the, the games in the Olympics where they would give the crowns, the wreaths, to those that ran the race, that won the various events. When they won the various events, the winner would come up to the stand like we see in the Olympics today, and now we give them a medal, but they would give them a crown. But it was just a crown made out of leaves. It was a perishable crown, as the Apostle Paul said. But it was representation of the accomplishments of that individual. The Apostle Paul said, I must go before the judgment seat of Caesar. He also, at different times, stood before the judgment seats of other magistrates. And each time he went before there, the judgment wasn't known until the judge stated it. And in each case, what was being considered were the acts of the individual. It will be the same for us. We are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and He will judge us according to what we have done in the body, the Bible says. What we have done while we're on earth. Now, as we've seen already in the past, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we know that what is wood, hay, and stubble will be burned, but we'll be saved, but we will suffer loss. But if what we have done is gold, silver, and precious stone, then we will have rewards in heaven. So our goal is to run the race well so that we stand before the judgment seat and receive a reward. That is the first judgment, which will happen at the judgment seat of Christ. We do know from Scripture that there's going to be some that come to that judgment seat and suffer loss. And it talks about that being a time of weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is an Orientalism, meaning a time of reflecting on what could have been. It's not talking about hellfire. It's not talking about the lake of fire. But it's talking about a time of regret. Understanding that the Lord could come for you before He comes for us <laughs> might help us keep in focus our own individual time at that judgment seat. When we go before the Lord to receive rewards for what we have done while on earth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. The judgment will begin at the house of God. Before the judgment happens for all the individuals that have lived since Adam that did not know the Lord, that did not come to a knowledge and an understanding that they needed a substitute, that judgment will come later. After the judgment at the Bema for rewards for the Christian and for those that live righteously, there's going to be a time when the Lord comes back with His saints. And it talks about the judgment of the nations. When the Lord, as He sets up His kingdom upon the earth, and that those that have proven themselves with Him will rule under Him, He is going to judge the nations then that are in existence. Because as we saw, when He comes to set up His kingdom, He's going to have to have righteousness on the earth. But then there's a time coming after that, at a certain time, at the end, when all... The enemies have been put under His feet. 
even after that time when the, Satan has been bound and then loosed. And there's going to come a time of the end when there's going to be a white throne judgment, when all the books will be opened. And all those that were not in one of the other judgments that did not know the Lord will then be brought before that white throne judgment. And that's when you'll see those that are thrown into the lake of fire, including death and including the devil himself. We know from Scripture that we can judge ourselves. We know from Scripture that the judgment that comes first to the household can start with us in our own hearts, that we can be judged now so we aren't judged with the world. And even Peter says here, those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. As we pointed out before, this is one of the things that they were able to accomplish in the early church was to help people commit their souls to the Lord. They were able to commend themselves to the Lord in such a way that He had a hold on them individually and corporately. We see this in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, where Jesus was on the cross. And right before He took His last breath, He said, Father, into your hands I commit or I commend my spirit. The same word. In other words, we can allow our souls to be in God's hand in the same way, with the same assurity now as Jesus was when he was on the cross and just before he breathed his last and gave up the ghost. And he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Daniel Webster, a 19th century statesman and congressman and senator, said that the greatest thought that had ever entered his mind was that he would have to stand before a holy God and give an account of his life. In generations past, even those that weren't Christians believed that and believed that they would stand before God at some time. And because of that, even those that didn't know the Lord many times had more fear of God than we see today many times in the church. And it basically comes from the lack of understanding and hope of the judgment seat of Christ and the fact that we will be judged and we will be rewarded for the things that we do in Christ Jesus. You know, even in ancient days in, in the Egyptian culture, even many years before Christ, they had courses and classes that they would give to their noblemen on how to prepare themselves to meet the judgment and what to say to the gods when you got there and how you could impress them. by The first thing you'd do when you got there was you needed to, to explain to them all the things that you did do that were bad because they knew eventually the scrolls were going to open and they're going to show you all the bad things you did do. <laughs> well, at least they were thinking. <laughs> but you know you're not going to change God. And He already knows all the things He didn't do, and He, he also knows all the things we did do. The only hope we have <laughs> is to be obedient and to walk in Christ and to commit our souls into His hands now. To allow Christ to be manifested in us so much, to, to have our souls saved to the place that it's Christ not only dwelling in us, but growing out through us. 
showing himself forth to the world, allowing him to come to the world through us and allowing him to come to us and direct our paths. In Matthew 6, uh, 19 through 21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Part of the reason that the church is too often too worldly is because we have our mind not on the things above, but on the things of the world. Our treasure is on the earth. Now you can have possessions, but if your treasure's in heaven, those possessions are only going to be used for the kingdom. But if those possessions are your treasures, your heart will be tied here. You won't be able to run the race. <laughs> now those are figures of speech, obviously, moths and rust and so on. Talking about the doubt and the worry that consumes us many times when all of our riches are upon earth. There's the old saying that you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. And that's really what we're called to do. We, unlike any in history before the resurrection of Christ, we are already living in our eternal life. And we have an opportunity to make a difference in what form that life will take. When I was in college, I, I, I was going to a, a denominational college, and I had a professor. He was quite well known, still is. At one point, he became the pastor of one of our presidents. He didn't believe in rewards. And the reason he didn't believe in rewards, he said, was because he felt that if heaven was heaven, and if you had a reward, the first thing you'd do is give it to somebody else. In a sense, he was correct. However, he felt that the heavenly kingdom should be equitable and equal. That's also the way he believed in his political worldview. However, Scripture is very clear that both merit and relationship matter in the kingdom. We wouldn't think it was right in hiring practices if someone were to get hired over us because they were related to the person that was doing the hiring. That would be nepotism. We wouldn't like that. But I'll guarantee you, you cannot get into heaven unless you know the king's son. <laughs> so in heaven, there is nepotism. And in heaven, merit does matter. Now, all your righteousness is as filthy rags. But what we do in Christ, what we speak on behalf of Christ, makes a difference. How well we know the Christ makes a difference. If He is our friend, that makes a difference. He has to be our Savior or we can't even get in. But what are eternal rewards for? Well, they're incentives while we're on earth. They give us hope, which builds faith. And they are for us to have to give in eternity through worship, and in the kingdom of heaven. One time when I was praying about rewards, I was asking the Lord, and I specifically had the thought, Lord, will we be able to share what we have, the things that we have, the treasures that we have in heaven, the things that we've sent ahead? 
whatever they are, whatever they're for, will we be able to share those with others? And the Lord spoke to me again audibly. And He said, Lloyd, don't you understand why you labor so hard? It's so that you have to give in the next heaven and earth. You see, it's the same principle even in heaven. That we work so that we have to give. Now on earth we work so we have to give to Him who has a need. I don't know if there's needs in heaven. <laughs> but we still are working now, laboring, so that we can enter into that rest, so that we have things, treasures in heaven, so that we can give even in the next heaven and earth. That's why I always say that if I can help someone down here to lay up one tiny little treasure in heaven, they will thank me for eternity. Because let's say, whatever that treasure is, let's say it's the same as a dime on earth, which isn't much. I'm sure it's not going to be money in heaven, but to put it into something that we can understand, a dime doesn't buy much. But unlike your dime, which once you spend it, it's gone, in heaven, if you have that much of an eternal reward, it's an eternal dime. So just as the worshipers came in and laid their crowns at the feet of the Lord Jesus that we see in the book of Revelation, those are eternal crowns. So they brought them in as respect and as worship. Those crowns represented the works which they did in Christ Jesus the blessings that they received at the judgment seat, but they were able to take them and lay them at His feet. In a sense, the works that they accomplished while in the body, they were able to lay at His feet, saying, even all this is not as great as you are. But since they're eternal crowns, even though they've given them to Him in worship, the next time they come in, they're back on their heads, so they can take them off again and lay them at His feet. Can you see why? If you had no crown, why you would have that remorse and there would be a place of weeping and gnashing while you're outside, not able to go in. We have to give even in heaven and in His kingdom. There's some principles in some of the parables that the Lord gave us that we can look at to understand a little bit about eternity and the principles that He has shared with us in Scripture so that we can understand how He's going to judge. You see one of them in Matthew chapter 20. We won't read the whole thing, but if you'd like to, it's Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, that was one day's wages, he sent them into the vineyard. But then he went out again at the third hour, and he saw some people that were idle, and he put them to work. Again he went out about the sixth hour, and again at the ninth hour, and about the eleventh hour, only one hour left, he went out and found others. Now, verse 8 says, So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to the steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius, a full day's wage. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received a denarius. And if you'll read, you'll see that they got upset. 
They said, wait, we worked so much longer, we should get paid more. He said, why? We agreed to pay you this wage. It's a good wage. It's a full day's wage. I'm paying you a full day's wage. Now, can't I pay this person a full day's wage even though they only worked the last hour? It's my money. I can give it to whom I will. And I think you see in this parable the Lord's heart. Because even those that get saved 15 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour before He comes for His church, if they're faithful, they'll receive a full day's reward. Now, I want you to understand, none of us is going to receive a full day's wage because we really worked that hard and earned it. The only reason we even get to come to the field is because of Jesus. <laughs> the only reason we have an opportunity to even be in that place where we can receive a reward is because of Jesus. So, if we can receive a full reward, that's all we need to receive. And if we have a heart like Jesus is trying to show to us, our heart should be that I would receive a full reward, but so would everybody else. And maybe you'll have to work for 50 years or 80 years as a Christian and be faithful that whole time, and somebody else might only have to be faithful for 20 minutes before they die, but we should be just as rejoicing... For them, as for us. I believe that's what the Lord has shown us in that parable. Another parable in Matthew 21, verse 28. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted, and he went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the Father? And they said to him, The first. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom before you. Sometimes we can get a little religious and think that we are going to be rewarded because we're so faithful to the Lord. But if we're only doing things that we feel should be done and not the things that He says should be done. We won't be rewarded for that. So those of us that didn't start out living for the Lord, but changed our ways and adjusted our lifestyle to what He says is true godliness, we'll receive a reward before those who said they were going to do it, but never did it. You see, the Lord is fully capable of giving a full inheritance to one who comes late. But, what of the one who came early but was unfaithful? Now you know the parable in Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. The whole parable goes all the way through 32. It's the parable commonly called as the parable of the prodigal son. But really it's the parable telling the heart of the father. Because that's really what's being shown in this parable. Because there are two sons. And really both were disobedient. One was disobedient by taking his inheritance early and then squandering it on riotous living. The other son appeared to be faithful in that he stayed there all that time and he was with the father, but yet when his brother came back, he refused to rejoice in that. When the son that had gone away, the prodigal, 
realized. It says he came to himself and he realized that even the servants in his father's household were better off than where he was. He began to put together a plan to try to bring himself back into the good graces of his father. Just like those old ancient Egyptians who would practice what they were going to say before they came and stood before the gods, he practiced what he could say when he stood before his father. And he put together this little apology and he said, I will arise, in verse 18, and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. Well, <laughs> he did come back. And as he came back, the father saw him from a distance and ran out to him, told the servants to get the fatted calf ready, prepare for some celebration. The son came and true to his plan, he began to recite what he had prepared. He couldn't even get through it before the father told him, look, you're forgiven, come back in, you're my son. You were dead, now you're alive. And they began to celebrate. And as you know, the other son came in from the field and wondered what all the celebration was about. He refused to go in. And when the father came to him also and said, why don't you come in? Your brother, he was dead, but now he's alive. Why aren't you happy? He said, I've been here all this time and you've never had a party like this for me. Here's what the father said to him. Verse 31, he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make Mary and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and he was lost and he was found. But I think in this we see a little bit about our inheritance. It's only ours because of the Father. But it's available to us now. It's only available to us while we're with the Father. Now we can take it and we can squander it. But even when we're with the Father, we can enter into the grace and the blessings that are there and not blow it on the things of the world and then come to ourselves with nothing. But we want to stay in a place where we're continuing to lay up treasures in heaven. But I believe what you see with the second son here, there's a, a secret or a mystery disclosed here in that the father said to him, all that I have is yours. In other words, in that statement, I think the Lord Jesus is showing to us, there is so much more available to us now than we recognize. It begins with laying up treasures in heaven and being aware of a little bit of what the Lord has in store for us. It begins with abiding in Him and being faithful to Him, but there's more to it. Because if we understand that those rewards, even later, are so that we can have to give, you already see His nature is not to just get by with the minimum, but to give us the maximum. So if our heart is to take of the supernatural and give it to others now, is it available? We don't have to wait. In 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. See, we are begotten through the resurrection 
of the Lord Jesus. Even the saints of old, before Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, had to be saved by grace. Now, they had the law to keep them in a place of grace, but they still had to be saved by grace, not of works. Their works just kept them in the place of grace. Same as today, our works get us into a place of grace where we can receive of Him. God gives grace to the humble. So if we work to be humble, we'll receive grace. Faith without works is dead. But your works don't save you. The grace saves you. By faith, and the works that go along with your faith, you place yourself in a position. By confessing Jesus as Lord, you placed yourself in a position to receive the grace of salvation. Your works didn't save you. They just put you in a place where God could save you in Jesus' name. But through the resurrection, not only do we have the grace of the salvation to come, but we have the grace of the salvation presently. Whereas the Old Testament believer never could quite know if he was going to receive salvation until he made it, until he was dead, he would never know. We can know now and we can walk in it. Because we can walk in newness of life and we can walk in resurrection power. When Jesus on the cross said, Father, unto you I commend my spirit, in a sense, the church was birthed with Jesus giving everything to the Father. As a symbol for us now, we should commend everything to the Son so that He can do for us what God did for Him in the resurrection. Can raise up in us the power of the Spirit of God which is in us, which is the Spirit of the resurrection. Something that is so awesomely powerful, it could not have been on the earth until Jesus was raised from the dead, ascended on high, sat down at the right hand of God, and gave that Spirit to men. And through that, and only through that, do we have an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that cannot fade away. And from that inheritance... From Jesus' own teachings, we have possible, we have available the opportunity now to take of that inheritance and distribute it in the earth. To do good in His name to draw men to Him. Verse 13, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. And rest your hope fully upon the grace that it is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the unveiling of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. If it's all going to be revealed to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, what happens now when things are unveiled to us in Christ? I believe by understanding that the Lord comes to us to bring grace and allowing Him to come and unveil Himself and reveal more of Himself, to be sure it's like looking through a glass darkly and we're going to see Him then face to face, but where does it say that that veil can't be lifted? Where does it say that we, he can't turn up that light behind that glass? Certainly it's going to be different once we are resurrected from the dead. Once we are changed, it will be different. However, we have the resurrected Spirit of Christ now, and we can walk in the power of the resurrection. 
if we allow our souls to be commended to Him, He will reveal to us now secrets of the mysteries of God. He will reveal to us secrets of His inheritance, which we will then be able to distribute and bless others with. We should be looking for Him. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 2, He says to be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard and hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Now, wait a second. We already saw that Jesus instructed the porters. He gave every porter his job, and he instructed the watchmen to watch. And we already know we're supposed to be watching for the enemy, but if we're watching for the enemy, that we'll see when he comes, right? But now he's telling them to watch, or I'll come as a thief. He says, and you will not know what hour. Now, we already know from Scripture that no man knows the day or the hour that the Lord is coming for his church, right? Not even the Son in heaven knows that. So when he says, hey, look, if you'll do these things, and if you'll repent, and if you watch, I won't come as a thief. If you don't repent, I am going to come as a thief, and you won't know the hour. He's implying that if they will change, he won't come as a thief, and they will know the day and the hour. So can he be talking about the day when he's coming for the church? No, he's talking about the day when he's coming to that church. He was talking about a coming, an unveiling, a revealing of himself, a visitation, which was going to come to them in their lifetime. Not many days hence, you might say. He said, I'm warning you now. I'm going to come and I'm going to check on you now. This isn't talking about the Bema. This isn't talking about the day of judgment. This is talking about a time when he's saying to them, look, I'm going to come. If you'll change these things, then I won't come as a thief. A thief sneaks in and he takes from you. So if he's implying he won't come as a thief and he won't come unannounced, then what is he saying? I will come not as a thief, but instead to take, I'll come to give. Instead of coming unannounced, I will let you know and, I, and you'll be prepared for me. This may have been the first bell at the door. <laughs> first ringing of the doorbell, maybe. We should be looking for him to come as a rewarder and not as a thief. How are we going to look for him to come as a rewarder? By living righteously, preparing ourselves. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Amen? In 2 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, Look to yourselves, that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Now we began the next course originally by talking about abiding in the Lord. We can never really leave that. That's really our goal at all times, to abide in the Lord. Now we know there's a time coming when there won't be a question about that because we'll have new bodies. But now there's a question. That's why when we put the effort into it, it means so much. That's why now when we put the effort into it, it's the church showing forth the manifold wisdom of God on the principalities and powers. Now it really means something. But he will be faithful to reward us for that effort to abide in him.
If we'll do that, He promises us a full reward. If we transgress, we're not abiding in the doctrine of Christ, but who does abide in Him abides in the doctrine of Christ. Now, throughout the next courses, what we've been weaving into all the things that we've been looking at are the doctrines that we see in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. The seven doctrines of the faith. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. That's the first one we see in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. That we would understand the elementary doctrines of Christ. That if we abide in Him, we will do all the things which He said that we should be doing. And if we will abide in Him, we can go on to perfection. We can grow up in all things unto Him who's the head. We can be perfected even though we won't be perfect until He changes us. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God and of the doctrine of baptisms and of the laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. These seven doctrines are foundational. And I may have already mentioned how one day I look at those after I've been preaching for years and I realized I wasn't even clear on any one of those doctrines, much less all seven. So I began to look. That's one of the reasons that I decided to do these NETS courses was to lay out for others the things that I'd found by looking at these doctrines and these foundations that we can build upon. In Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul is speaking of the children of Israel. And in verse 20, he says, Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell severity but towards you, goodness, and if you continue in His goodness, otherwise you'll be cut off of the reward of the inheritance that was promised in the past through Abraham that we have now, but we even have it at a higher order because we have a priest under the order of Melchizedek. Much has been done in the name of God through the Christian church that was very wrong because they did not do it out of the fear of God but we're haughty. Much evil has been done to other nations and other religions, including those of Israel, by the church in the name of God, because they did not do what was said there, that we should be fearful of God and have the love of God in awe that God would give us who are not natural branches, but had to be grafted in. And yet, if through disobedience, He even cut off those that were of the natural tree, what would He do to us that are of the wild that has been grafted in? We should have fear of God. We should behold both the goodness and the severity of God. There's been times when missionaries have gone out and have preached only the severity of God, only that there's a judgment day coming and that God's going to get you. But then there's also when we preach only that God is good and loving and that He wants to do good for you. Either of those doctrines are unbalanced. We have to behold both the goodness and the severity of God. We have to understand there is a judgment day coming. For those that don't know Christ, there's only one end. But for those of us that do know Him, 
there can be a judgment of grace, righteousness, reward, inheritance, which we can, if we're faithful and abide in Him and look for His coming and expect His visitation and expect the Holy Spirit to unveil Him to us, we can even enter into some of that inheritance now that we can begin to give of eternity to others through what He has already stored up for us. Amen.